When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his clothes and divided them into four parts, one for each soldier. They also took his tunic. Now the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from the top. So they said to one another, let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to see who will get it. This was to fulfill what the scripture says. They divided my clothes among themselves, and for my clothing they cast lots, and that is what the soldiers did. Meanwhile, standing near the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing beside her, he said to his mother, Woman, here is your son. Then he said to the disciple, Here is your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her into his own home. This is the word of God for the people of God. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you for this day and the opportunity to gather in your house as your children. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, so that these thy people see less of me and more of thee, until they see all of thee and none of me. Amen. For the sake of those who may just be joining us, and as a refresher for the rest of us, our Lenten sermon series is titled, Listening for God, the Last Seven Words from the Cross. And over the last two weeks, we've begun to look at the final and yet most powerful sermon that Jesus ever preached. Now, as Christians, we might be familiar with the well-known Sermon on the Mount, which features the Beatitudes. Or we may be uh, even really familiar with some of the longer parables and teaching moments that Jesus shared with his disciples and at times very large crowds. But because these final words here are woven together from all four of the gospel accounts, it's not so clearly outlined or titled in our Bibles as Sermon from the Cross, but essentially uh, that's what it is. And as we've begun to see through these last few weeks, um, I think that's probably exactly what Jesus meant it to be. From Luke's vantage point for these last two weeks, we saw what almost anyone else uh, would have witnessed, a very public trial before Pontius Pilate. Luke describes how Pilate even calls together the chief priests and the leaders and all the people. The crowd is huge and everyone is screaming for Barabbas, not Jesus. They marched Jesus through the streets. Luke writes, a great number of people followed him. Up the hill to Golgotha, and there, even from a good distance, you can see the other crosses. You can hear the commentary from the other spectators in the crowd, because Luke's vantage point is probably from within the crowd. He saved others, let him save himself. If you're king of the Jews, save yourself. We learned last week that death from crucifixion was most likely caused by asphyxiation and inability to breathe. And so as we follow this chronological storyline, those conversations we've heard before about Jesus and the thieves, that was probably happening at the beginning of this process. And so they were probably still audible to the crowd below. But that's it, at least from where Luke is standing or from whoever Luke heard the story from is standing. That's all there is until Jesus cried out and breathed his last. But we know that death was not so quick. 
we know that there was some greater measure of time that had elapsed between the nailing and the dying, at least three hours of darkness. And it is during this time that we follow Jesus' sermon line into the Gospel of John. Now, John was a different kind of disciple. As one of the sons of thunder, John was hot-headed and ready to go. I identify with that. <laughs> Even inquiring of Jesus and his brother, if he and his brother James should call down some fire on a group of Samaritans who did not welcome them into their village. So John was hot to try. John, one of the first disciples called. John, the disciple whom Jesus loved. John, one of the three disciples closest to him. John, Jesus' own cousin. John, the only male disciple who is at the foot of the cross as Jesus is dying because the others are too afraid to be so closely identified with a man who was condemned by the empire. But John is nearby, probably even accompanying his own mother, Mary's sister, Salome. And it is from John that we get a clearer picture of what was going on. Now, as a note, we had a quick conversation after the 830 service about who's who and who's related to who. And the Bible is full of Marys and Johns. There's at least three Marys we heard about here at the foot of the cross, and we've got a number of Johns. So if you look at all of the Gospels, and I Googled it so you know it's legit. <laughs> and by Google, I mean I looked up the Bible. If you're looking at the Gospel of Mark, it says many women were there. They had followed Jesus. Among them were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Joseph, and the mother of Zebedee's sons. Well, the mother of Zebedee's sons is John. And then the Gospel of Matthew. I know, right? <laughs> no. Some women were watching. Among them were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James the younger, Joseph, and Salome. And Salome is the one who we identify as the, as the mother of the sons of Zebedee. So you can piece it together. In some capacity, he's probably there with his mother. That's how I put all that together. All right. So John... He's there, comforting his own mother. He's got family there. Mary, all the Marys are there. Um, and they're here at the foot of the cross. Now, John, in his gospel, also outlines this very public journey to Golgotha. But he's got a better vantage point than Luke, probably because he was actually there. John hears and relays to us the conversation about the inscription above Jesus' head, how it got there and who wrote it. John doesn't just see the soldiers bidding for Christ's clothing. He hears what they're saying. And as the breathing gets harder and the speech uneven, John is there to hear the whispers of Christ. No more public declarations. No more long-winded speeches to thousands of hungry listeners. It's just the family. Just those who are closest to Jesus. Of the four gospel writers, John is the only one who records the presence of Jesus' mother at the foot of the cross. The other writers, since they were most likely referencing Mark's gospel, put these women all at a distance, observing from far off. But I got to tell you, I don't believe that for a minute. 
I have seen how mothers care for their children. Mary's son is in trouble. He has been arrested, tried, marched through the streets, condemned by the entire city, and is now dying on a cross. Surely she is not standing at some distance watching these things. That's her baby. And this too is a fulfillment of prophecy. If you recall back after Christmas, shortly after Jesus was born, Joseph and Mary took him to the temple, and there they met an old man named Simeon. And upon seeing the Christ child, Simeon took Jesus in his arms, exclaiming that he had seen his salvation. And he blessed the child, and he blessed the parents. And as he handed that eight-day-old baby boy back to his teenage mother, he said, this child is destined For the falling and rising of many in Israel. And to be a sign that will be opposed so that the inner thoughts of many will be revealed. And a sword will pierce your own soul too. And Mary knew. She knew right then and there that there would be a price to pay. To live for Christ and to share in his salvation is costly. The nails that were put through his wrists could have just as well have gone through hers. Jesus' pain was her pain. That's the way it is with mothers. At least from what I've seen and what I've experienced. And so as we come now to the third word from the cross, we begin to see something about the extent of Jesus' love. Here, dying in agony, gasping for each breath, he sees his mother. The one who comforted him through all of his childhood cuts and bruises, teases and taunts. The one he would run home to and instantly be wrapped in a protective and all-encompassing love. He sees her at the foot of his cross, heartbroken, weeping, inconsolable, and his heart breaks for her. And rather than being consumed by an understandable concern for his own welfare, he is concerned for hers. And so this third word from the cross to this small group huddled below is fascinating for all that it implies. Firstly, as Jesus says, woman, here is your son, here is your mother. John's real mother is standing right here. This isn't a Lifetime movie where some poor little orphan boy is bequeathed a new family. He's got a mama right there at the foot of the cross. A brother, too, and what I assume to be a whole host of other cousins and such, so there's that. Secondly, Mary had other children. Jesus had at least four named brothers in Scripture and then an undisclosed number of sisters. Mary was not wanting for any additional children. So what was this about? Well, from what little we know about Mary, we know she's in her late 40s, maybe early 50s. She's a widow. After the incident of finding Jesus teaching in the temple as a child, her husband Joseph is gone from Scripture. It is presumed that he died, like most people do. We know that widowhood presented a difficult time in a woman's life, especially when compounded with a diminished ability to meet financial needs. And this was common circumstance in the ancient patriarchal world of the Bible. 
following the death of her husband. A widow's best hope for security would be her son's ability to provide for her. The loss of a son was therefore an even greater tragedy for a widow. That's why in both the Old and the New Testaments, widows are repeatedly the subjects of miracles. Naomi, Ruth, Abigail, Judith as some examples. We know that Mary had most likely thrown her lot in entirely with Jesus. Because, well, when you make a baby with the Lord God Almighty and your kid is literally Jesus, all right, all the other kids are going to have a hard time stacking up to that. And that may sound trite, but we see this in Jesus' relationship with his siblings. It's strained to some degree. In Mark chapter 3, his family heard he was healing people and went to restrain him because everyone was saying, oh, he's out of his mind. And so his family came down, and standing outside, they sent to him, they called him, and a crowd was in there with Jesus, and they said to him, your family's outside asking for you. And Jesus goes, who are my mother and my brothers? And looking at those around him, Jesus said, here are my mother and brothers. Whoever does the will of God is my brother and sister and mother. Well, that's got to sting. Even John, in chapter 7, verse 5, records a conversation between Jesus and his brothers and then remarks kind of offhand, not even his brothers believed in him. And as a note, there are some biblical scholars who would mark these siblings of Jesus as step-siblings, claiming that they were Joseph's children from a previous marriage. And if true, this would also most likely cause some additional tension between Mary and the other children, because she's not the real mom. The point here is that the other children in the family, whether hers or Joseph's, we just don't know, they don't believe in Jesus as she does. Though it might eventually be their legal duty to care for her, Perhaps Jesus senses that such care would be less than what she deserves. And since, as the still-living firstborn son of Mary, Jesus is legally responsible for her welfare, he now acts to ensure that she has a place to live and food to eat during her widowhood and entrusts his mother to John's care instead. Woman, here is your son, Here is your mother. Now, we might sense a coldness in the term, uh, given our time and culture, but in Jesus' world, it was perfectly proper for a man to address a woman in this way. Still strange for a son to speak to his own mother that way, but the reason for this is that it's probably a more formal address. Jesus is intending for his words to be understood as a formal testimony and disposition under Jewish family law. And nobody knows the law better than Jesus. Now, we've already even kind of talked about who John was, this son of thunder, a fisherman, full of all kinds of spit and vinegar. But this is also the John who went running to the empty tomb. It's the John who identified the risen Christ from way out in a boat. This is the John who wrote the gospel we read from this morning and later the book 1 John. These are the two most beautiful books about the love of God in the whole Bible. This is the John who took his aunt into his care and dutifully carried out one of Jesus' final requests. 
It says, from that time on, this disciple took her into his home. And as we read through the rest of the New Testament, we find that Mary and John were together in the upper room when the Holy Spirit was given to the church in Acts 1 and 2. We also discover that Mary and John traveled to live in Ephesus. Temples were built in Ephesus to both Mary and John, indicating their shared lives in that city. And so I don't think it's too far of a leap to suggest that Mary and John, the two people who probably loved Jesus the most here on earth, took care of each other until their dying day, just as Jesus had asked them to. Hanging from the cross at Golgotha, with two thieves at either side, with hecklers below the cross, Jesus was also surrounded by the love of two people, his mother and his best friend. And in his last acts of compassion and guidance, Jesus focused on their needs and asked them to take care of each other in the future. Jesus said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Jesus said, you, yes, you, even now at this final hour, you will be with me in paradise. And you too, take care of each other. Take care of each other when I am gone. So as we continue through this season of Lent, as we draw closer to the crucifixion, and as we remember Christ's death and resurrection with this shared meal, I encourage you to think about what your vantage point will be. What will your story sound like? How will the gospel of Elizabeth sound? How will the gospel of Tom read? Who will look back on the gospel of Jerry? Will we view these days of darkness from a distance, caught up in the crowd and wondering why God is silent and inactive? Will we copy the words of our friends and rely on the testimony of others? Or will we come in close? Will we gather at the foot of the cross with John and Mary? Will we keep watch with the other family members of Christ? And lastly, will we do what we've been told to do? Will we care for one another the way that John and Mary cared for each other? Will we recognize the image of Christ in all of those who gather with us? Look to your left. Look to your right. Look in front of you and behind you, in front of you and behind you. Look around, get a sense of who's here. Here is your Amen.